major decision, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. For every major decision in our lives, my mom would go and pray and uh, seek the Lord, and somehow God would always answer. Now, my dad's great, too. <laughs> I don't talk about him enough. He's, he's a wonderful man. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I was having dinner with my future in-laws on uh, Friday, and I was so exhausted from just the day, so uh, I just knew I didn't want to drive the next, you know, drive that night. So that next morning, after breakfast, we're getting ready to leave, and that's when the tra- travel advisory ban was released. We're like, all right. So I go this morning. Uh, well, last night, I dug my car out, thinking that they would clear the street. This street had, I'm, I'm not joking, I had snow up to, uh, up to right here. And I'm not a small guy, you know what I mean? So this is about two and a half feet of snow. We waded through it and looked at it and said, there's no way, even if we can get the car out, there's no way we can clear the street. So guess what? F- future father-in-laws, <laughs> he has a four-wheel drive. <laughs> so I got his car and drove out here this morning. So very grateful to be with you. So thank you, Mr. Lee, for your car. Uh, the Lord has put a word on my heart for you. Um, it's a very simple word, so don't let the degrees fool you. All right? There's no great revelation. There's no great new knowledge to share. That was Gnosticism. That was the Colossian heresy. There is only one message that we share. We preach it over and over and over again until Jesus comes back. And it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14. Good to see you, Mike and Lisa. I love y'all. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, right? So here's this beautiful, every gospel. Why do we have four different gospels? Because you get this vision, you get the story of Jesus from four different perspectives, right? And Matthew has a very specific goal in his storytelling. It's in the gospel of Matthew, it's this slow unveiling of Jesus, little by little, bit by bit. It's this beautiful package. You've had those packages, you've had those wrappers, you open one and like there's more and you begin to like unwrap them bit by bit and you begin to see this like richness of the gift inside. That's kind of what we're seeing with the gospel of Matthew. You begin with the genealogy and right in the genealogy he uses the usual uh, you know Jewish model of working through the genealogy but using male figures usually but then now he throws in Every now and then he throws in a couple of women in there, unheard of in Jewish genealogies, right? And then he uses foreigners. What? The Messiah is going to come from foreign blood? And it's kind of his intentional way of being subversive to say, yeah, you have all your cute designs. You think you are all the insiders. You think God works only through you, but guess what? God works through Rahab. God works through Tamar. God works through the Moabite, through the Ruth. And he starts to be subversive. But his point is, is this unveiling of who Jesus is. Of course, so you have chapter one, and then you have chapter two, and then you have chapter three, and there's this launching of Jesus' ministry. And then, of course, in chapter five, we see the great Sermon on the Mount, right? So once the Sermon on the Mount is done, Jesus is being inaugurated as this phenomenal healer. He calls his disciples, so he's not any regular rabbi, right? He's a rabbi who not just teaches, but he's a rabbi who speaks with authority. And then you go into the next passage where he heals people, and right after that you get this massive teaching because every rabbi has to teach, right? And the Messiah has to be able to teach with authority. So he gets to this amazing passage. But it's not just a teaching Messiah. 
He's a healing Messiah. It's not just the proclamation of the kingdom, but it's also the works of the kingdom that he comes and inaugurates. He teaches and he heals the sick and raises the dead. He does it amazing. But you understand, up to this point, these are all things everybody does. All of the prophets have done these things, right? The prophets have healed. The prophets have fed. Elijah was fed. Moses fed the Israelites. Of course, God, you know, did it. God provided the manna. But there are these recurring themes throughout the Old Testament of what the prophets have done that the Messiah is now doing. So when the Jewish people are seeing this, they're like, wow, Moses fed the Israelites in the desert and Jesus is feeding the thousands, right? So there's correlation happening. So keep that in mind as we look at chapter 14. So we get through this amazing teaching in chapter 13. And in 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? 5,000 people gathered. And you can hear the typical, you know, I don't know if you have advisors in your lives, right? Especially if you're a business owner. You want advisors, right? If you, if you run a church, you have board members. But every now and then you'll have these advisors, they're not necessarily, uh, listen, not this church. Okay, I'm talking about some other church. <laughs> this is a great church. But you have advisors in your life that will come and say things, but they're not speaking out of the spirit, right? So here you have these advisors. The launching, this is ministry being launched. Jesus has just launched this amazing ministry. And now there are all these people have gathered. Jesus can teach. Jesus can heal. But now they've gathered and they tell, and disciples tell, tell, say to Jesus, Jesus, all these people have gathered. They need food, all right? So let's do this strategically. Let's just dismiss everybody so we don't have to deal with this anymore, right? In verse 15, good advice, right? The, we all have people like this in our lives, right? They're thinking about crowd control. They're thinking about complaints that's going to arise. 5,000 people, no small number. Right, So how do we strategically manage this in a way that gets everybody out in rows and lines so there's no chaos and our ministry, our reputation is preserved? Right, And so what is the, they say, send the crowds away in verse 15. Let them go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Buy themselves some food. You see that? What does Jesus say? The kingdom perspective. Jesus replied, verse 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You see this? This is the kingdom, the spirit perspective. You give them something to it. We have only five loaves of bread and two fishes. What does Jesus say? Bring them here. So you hear this amazing ministry of provision. What happens right after this? If I was Peter and John and James and all the apostles around Jesus, you know what I would say? As a good Indian person would say? I'd say, Jesus, now is a great time to launch a website. <laughs> Let's live stream this stuff. This is going to go viral. This is going to go global. Like, let's get a Twitter account. Let's get social media expert. Let's get this thing going. Because you just fed the 5,000. Who does that? We haven't seen anything like this since Moses. Like, this is a really big deal. If you launch a website, Jesus, and let's build, I mean, let's get Trump to build a conference center right here, you know? Right by the lake, you know, Genesaret, and then we can just call it, you know, Genesaret Resorts and Towers, whatever we have to call it. Like, this would be a great time to launch a ministry. But what does Jesus do? And this is where we see in verse 22, the number of those who ate in verse 21 were 5,000 besides women and children. So listen, by the time you add the women and the children, we're talking about a lot of people, right? Because this was not a men's meeting. This was not a men's breakfast. <laughs> right? All right? Jesus, Jesus wanted everybody. It was like a multi-generational family meeting. All right? So at verse 22, notice this. 
I want you to notice this first word verse 22 opens up with. It's going to be very important as we work our way through this passage. Verse 22 says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Why? Notice, immediately. Because you know what? He knows. These guys, not necessarily spirit people. They're going to see all of this excitement. They're going to see all this glamour and the crowds, and they're going to want to come and make me king. But guess what? My time has not yet come. Yes, I am a king. Yes, I am the Messiah. But what they, all these people, 5,000 people, I mean, that's enough for like, a good crowd. And the disciples are like, man, we are, we're like, this is, this is gold, right? And so they're like, yeah, let's, let's, let's capitalize on this. But notice, Jesus makes them immediately. He makes them get into a boat. It's the picture is almost like, like grabbing, like, guys, you need to go. I don't know, you, someone's going to mess up. This thing. Like, take it, like, get into the boat, go, right? It's this intentional getting them on. And what does Jesus do? Jesus steps back and dismisses the groups. Like, don't you love that? What would we do? What do our great preachers do these days? Preach and then go, go hide like a back door, right? And who, you know, there's other people designated to do these things. We are too important. No, no, we have to have bodyguards. Have you heard of the bodyguard ministry? <laughs> the five-fold ministry? It's a six-fold ministry. Of course, the postal pastor, you know? But these are like, no, we're called to, like, take care of good man of God. Right? It's ridiculous, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's, the, but Jesus dismissed the people. Jesus went. Can you imagine Jesus? saying hi to the children. Why do we only have pictures of Jesus in our mind as this great teacher, you know, sitting down on the rock, giving this amazing parable, and then getting back and saying, okay, see you all, and people just kind of dispersing. No, he literally went and dismissed people, all right? Now watch this. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. Notice this. In verse 23, it says, he went up a mountainside by himself to pray. Why? You know why? Because just a few verses before, his best friend died. Right? John the Baptist, the one, his cousin, who went ahead of him preparing the way, they took his head. They cut his head off. And right after John was martyred, the Bible says Jesus withdrew and took time for himself. Before, and then the people came and then he served them. But then he went away again by himself. He went on a mountainside by himself. Here's the thing. You have to retreat. You have to get away to gain perspective. But more importantly, it's not just getting away to gain perspective. It is an intentional act of centering. All of us have these amazing, you know, we are all into like self-care and self-help these days. So we're like, ooh, you got to get away, meditate, you know, get into your little quiet space and center yourself. Jesus was never talking about centering himself, right? It's Jesus, he went on a mountainside by himself to pray. Notice, you don't just get away to the mountainside to like get into a posture like, you know, it's so funny to me. Did you know there are more 
So if you go to the Yale University uh, campus ministries, InterVarsity has more Asians in their campus ministry, and there are more, <laughs> the majority of people in their Buddhist meditation groups are actually white. All of the Asians are in the campus crew, the campus crew say InterVarsity. Right? So there's like this popularity of meditation. Oh, you've heard the term? Oh, it's so Zen. Like, what's so Zen? What are you talking about? It's, it's so Zen. Okay, but what they're trying to say is this. Oh, you just get into this mode of just meditation. You just focus, and you just get this amazing peace, right? That's not what we're talking about here. It's not about just getting away and getting quiet and getting absorbed into this ultimate reality that's somewhere else. No. What Jesus is doing is a very intentional centering. It's a very intentional withdrawing to to pray, to seek the face of the Father, to speak to the Father, to gaze upon the Father. Because here's the thing, gazing upon the Father orients our day. Let me say that again. Gazing upon our Father orients our day. Because the thing is, if you don't have that, everything, everything that's clamoring all around us will vie for our attention. Because if you want a purpose in life, the world will tell you what it is. It's materialism, consumerism. It's all of these urgencies that are clamoring for your attention. But unless you're centered on the Father, unless you are prayed, and unless you hear, you gaze on the Father, and you speak to the Father, and you hear from the Father, all of these other things will vie for your attention. Right? Let's keep going. Because let's get to the end of the chapter. He says, he went on a mountainside by himself to pray. But then look at verse 24. Later, he was, that night, he was there alone. Notice the time, right? Throughout this passage, you'll hear the timestamps going on, right? Later that night, he was alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. No, notice here again. We don't know now. We know Jesus is up on the mountain praying and seeking the Father. And now we know the boat is out in the water, buffeted by the waves. Think about it. It's literally, have you been on a boat? Have you been on a stormy sea? It's literally like the waves crashing and the boats going up and down. And the waves literally buffeted by the waves. And the wind was against it. So this ain't going nowhere. Right? It's stuck there, and yet it's going through this turmoil, but it was later that night when this was happening. So what you have here is a zoomed-out, eagle's-eye perspective of the situation. Right? You see Jesus on the one side on the mountain. You see the boat on the other side. and It's like this beautiful contrast. Jesus, quiet, centered, praying to the Father, you know, struggling with the chaos and the pain that he is feeling. Not the chaos, but the pain he is feeling from the loss of his dear friend. And then you see the chaos over there, the chaos of the, of, of the guys like battling everything. But the question that I have is, could Jesus see from the mountain what was going down in the sea? Could Jesus see that? Okay, even if his physical vision was obscured or the distance or whatever, you couldn't really see it. But Jesus is all-knowing, right? I mean, could Jesus see, whether physically or spiritually or with, with his own insight, could he see that the disciples were battling the waves? They were being, not just, it's buffeted. It's buffeted by the waves. Here's the thing. Now I want us to go back to the disciples' perspective. Oftentimes when we are buffeted, we are perplexed. We're perplexed in our hearts. 
And we, 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 we stepped out because he said to go, yet we are buffeted by the waves. So here's the first thing. Somehow, when we're buffeted, we feel that if we were sent out by Jesus, if Jesus compelled us to go, then somehow we feel like we should be exempt from these crises. Amen? I mean, Jesus told us to go. Listen, it wasn't like I didn't choose to do this. Right? I was okay over there, Lord. You know? Like, I didn't choose to, you know, I, I, it, I, it really seemed like you were asking me to go to Queens and stay out there. Like, what's going on, Lord? Like, I'm stuck here. Like, I want to get to Risen King today. But, like, you know, like, I could have stayed on that shore. We could have started an amazing ministry, Jesus. But you made me. You made me get into the boat. You compelled me. Right? It's like this deep, they didn't choose this. So can you imagine? They must be thinking, what was going through their minds? Lord, you put us into the boat. You didn't come. You're all-knowing. We know that. Why did you go to the mountain and allow us to just go alone? The 12, all 12 of us, Jesus. I mean, if it was Judas, it's fine. You know? But like all of us, like what do we do? You know? We're hurting out here, Lord. We're buffeted. We're buffeted by the waves. Like, okay, that sinner, that heathen, that pagan who's going to disown you later, that none of us like anyway, because he keeps all the money. He's a treasurer. Like, he doesn't give what we need. So, like, okay, so he's not the spirit-led person. Like, he's probably the one giving the rational decisions, right? Saying, oh, we don't have enough money to feed all these people, so we have to think through this, right? Thank God for those rational people, though, huh? You always want somebody rational on your team, because <laughs> otherwise you're in for a big trouble, right? But, but think about what's going on. Through. We think that we're exempt from this, right? We think, yeah, if we follow Jesus... All our problems, like we are not going to have problems. But remember, the second missionary journey of Paul started with a big fight. Started with a church split, right? Mission team, they were out there. Paul and Barnabas, man, this was his buddy. This was his mentor. This was his encourager. When nobody wanted him, he went and picked him up. Brought him along and said, come, we'll go together. Invested in his life, trained him, took care of him. And then they launched out together on the first missionary journey. The Spirit of God spoke to them, said about Paul and Barnabas. They went out and they do this amazing church planning ministry. Right? But second missionary journey, what happens? Bud, let's go. Barney, <laughs> Barney, let's go, and let's go and visit all the churches we planted. What happens? They have a difference of opinion, right? And then they have a big fight. So what they, they, there's a church split. So somehow we think, ooh, if there starts with a church split, if it starts with a fight, we're like, oh, no, this is not from the Lord. Look at how many problems we're having. Like, the, if it's from the Lord, like, we shouldn't have this many conflict. Right? We shouldn't be going through so much. But that's not the conclusion they both reach. They pause it, let's go, let's take care of this. Right? Somehow we think we're exempt from this. Second is this, when we experience buffeting, we expect Jesus to come right away. Right? Come on, Jesus, you told us to go. Like now we're in this chaos, in this crisis, and we are your people. We are the people of the Spirit. We are people that pray and you hear. We're people of authority. When we pray and God shows up, right? But then what do you do when God doesn't show up? Right away. Right? We think God should just, it, it's panic mode. We want all hands on deck. I don't know if any of you are panickers. None of us, none of us here, right? 
a little crisis, like panic mode. It's like, there's no like reasonable, okay. No, no, it's, it's all panic. Like, oh, what am I going to do? I don't think this is so messy. You know, we get into these moments. It's just panic. We want everybody to react. We want everybody. And if somebody doesn't get out, like react the way that we want, we would like, what's wrong with you? It's not me. You know, but then here's the third thing. There are moments that are so dire, we feel like we're at a loss for words. We just don't know how to respond. We're buffeted by the waves. But here's what we do. Here's my, here's my first point. In moments like this, we simply lean into God. And we begin to pour out what I'm calling buffeting prayers. I don't know if you've been in a place like this, where you're, you're like, God, I stepped out because you said so. You sent me along the way. But Lord, now I'm being buffeted. The waves and the winds are crashing over my boat. I don't even have any words to say. But in moments like this, we begin to pour out buffeting prayers. You know, buffeting prayers are very interesting. I don't know if you've had to do this. Buffeting prayers are when (laughs) no words come out. Yeah, you could have a PhD in theology. You could be teaching biblical theology and be an amazing professor. You could be a servant of the church who's been serving everywhere and you've been teaching people how to pray. But guess what? In moments of buffeting, no words come out. We simply lean into God and begin to pour out because we hold on to the truth that if he asked you to step out, He will not fail you. That's kind of what we were singing today, right? You're good. You're good. Lord, I don't know what's going on. It's crisis all around me, but I keep confessing, God, you're good. And it's almost like, come on. Can we like think about all the wonderful hymns of the church? Right? There were hundreds of hymns written, rich in theology. Some of my favorite are by Charles Wesley, right? I mean, even we just went through Christmas Eve, the kind of stuff he says, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive. Like, that's amazing, right? And then we sing very simple songs. Set a fire down in my soul that I can't. And I'm like, come on, man. You got to be a little bit more theologically deep than that. Right? Or like, you are good. You are good all the time. I mean, it's like, God is so good. Come on. Like, you went to seminary to write that song? I mean, you paid, you know, what, $15,000, $20,000 a year. That's not how much it costs. Please come to Alliance Seminary. We'll give you a scholarship because you're seeing many people. <laughs> it doesn't cost that much. But the point is... I mean, you go through all of this education, you go through this amazing biblical theology class with Frank Chan, where you write this, how many, 25-page paper? 25-page paper. Who writes 25-page paper in a master's program? If you do, you come to ATS. <laughs> and the thing is, and the best of what your theology can teach you is God is so good. And then like sing it in multiple languages, right? I mean, that's the height of our theological process in some of these books. But guess what? Sometimes this is all we got. Yeah. It's a buffeting prayers. Experience a loss of words. The only words that come out in these moments are, God, help me. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed this in these last few weeks. In moments of just being buffeted. In moments where like you step out and you're following God. You hear God's voice and God sends you on your way. And then you find yourself caught in a storm. You look at the clouds. You look at the waves beating about you and the winds that are about you. And the only thing you can say is, God, help me. I don't know what is going on. I'm speaking to the waves. I'm saying, be silent. Be still with all authority. But it's not settling down. 
all you can do is buffeting prayers. It's buffeting prayers are like breath prayers. It's like what David prayed, you know, oh Lord, make haste to help me. Oh my God, deliver me. It's these like, quick little breath prayers. So I don't know if you've been in this place where you can't really say anything other than, Lord, I trust you. I remembered, you know, when I came to preach here last, it was uh, at a moment of, I had finished 12 years of theological education. I didn't want a PhD. I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to be a professor. I was just following God, step by step. Doors just kept opening, and God said, keep going, bud, keep going, and voila, you know? And I'm like, at the end of my 12 years of training and theological, I don't know where I'm going next. I've got three months to leave the country, but I don't know which country to go to. I don't have a country, right? I'm Indian, but I was born and raised in Kuwait, and I can't really go back to Kuwait. I can't really go to India because I don't fit. I could go, but that'd be, you know, like, where do you go? Do you go to Korea? So I was thinking about going to Korea. Philippines? So it's from a couple, you know, and I'm like, I just don't know. I did, I'm like, God, you just say it. And I don't know if you've been there. You just say, God, you say it, and I'll do it. You know, you just tell me, what do you want? Anything you want, I'll do. Have you prayed those prayers? It's like, God, you, you're so surrendered. The only thing you can keep doing is more surrender. You just keep giving your heart to God and pouring out your heart to God, saying, God, you know, I've done everything you've wanted me to do. The only thing I can keep doing is just say, I trust you. Breath prayers. And it was in those more moments of breath prayers that I was invited to come here. And met Ron, and it was like a marriage made in heaven, right? It's like you meet Ron, and you're like, oh, man. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> How did I get through life without you? <laughs> you know, but it's these moments of, yeah, you look at Ryan like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's another breath prayer, but it's these moments of just breath prayers. But then look at verse 25. Shortly before dawn. Now, you've got to understand, the previous timestamp we have was in the night. In the night, and then Jesus waited shortly before dawn. Okay, the earliest of dawn is still 5 a.m. All right? There were five, six hours in there. Later in the night, go night, you know, started early those days. So let's say 8 o'clock. Let's say 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. There were six, seven hours, Jesus. Why did it take you so long? I don't know about you, but when I'm being buffeted, like, I'm like, come on, Jesus, let's go. I want some comfort here, <laughs> you know? But here it says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. My first question is, okay, Jesus sent them on the boat. What was Jesus' strategy to get to them? Did anybody ask? Did any of the disciples ask, Jesus, you're sending us on. How will you come? Like, we're taking the only boat. All of us are in here. How do you plan to get from the mountain to across the lake? I mean, we're not just going for a cruise. You know, it's like circling and like coming back to pick you up, right? That's not the plan. We're like going across the lake. No one asked that. But shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately, the second time you see that word immediately, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Notice here, first of all, all of us smart people are looking at this story and thinking, boys, you guys are so dumb. You look at Jesus 
the one who's your rabbi, who's your disciple maker, who's been hanging out with you all this time, and you call him a ghost, what kind of sense do you have? Right? Sometimes I think about Mary in the garden. I'm like, what do you mean you thought she was a, he was a gardener? Like, open your eyes. Like, we think like that, right? I don't know about you, okay? This is just Stanley's, like, internal processing. I'm letting you in, all right? This is, like, the big theologian speaking, right? But I'm thinking, like, you guys are so dumb. Like, why didn't you just see that that's Jesus? Right? But here's the thing, though. What other logical conclusion would you come to? When was the last time you saw someone walking on the water? And listen, in all the pictures of Jesus walking on the water that I've seen, it's like the shore is here, and Jesus is like a few feet away. Right? Like you just swim to Jesus, right? I mean, but that's not what it was like. They had been out there for over eight hours. And these guys are fishermen. They know how to row a boat. You know, so they're out there. And Jesus comes walking on the water. Now, in order for them to misunderstand Jesus to be a ghost, Jesus has to be a considerable distance away. Right? But here you see, they are now petrified. It's like, you know, it's like these guys, you know, I don't know how to swim, right? My dad was a hydrophobe. So, uh, so we were never allowed to go near the water. So we, so, you know, it's like, so we don't know how to swim. So we, you know, it's like, so every time I go into a boat or something, I'm like playing, you know, storylines in my head. Young man, full of potential, gone too soon, you know? (laughs) I'm like thinking about all these narratives, you know, I've got to like grab the life preserver. But you know, like think about that, right? It's like this, you know, know, you're in this boat, your boat is capsized, and then, you know, somehow with every energy and strength you have, you're drowning, your lungs are filling up, somehow you grab onto a piece of plank, and then you surface, you're just holding on for dear life. (sighs) And then you see a shark coming your way. Right? I mean, I don't know if you've been to moments like that, right? You've done everything you can to just survive this buffeting, and then all of a sudden it gets worse. Right? Just when you thought, like, Jesus is coming with comfort and hot chocolate, it's like it gets worse, right? That's what's going on here. They see a ghost. But notice, again, the second point. In all of the other times, see, Jesus takes his time. Shortly before dawn, he comes to them. But when they are petrified, when they are, you know, scared out of their socks, immediately, you know, Jesus' response is not like, let's just wait it out. You know, let these guys learn a little bit. No, Jesus immediately assures them, reassures them, and says, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. So here's this thing. The chaos and crisis that surrounds us yearns for us to react. But if you've sought the face of the Father, then you know how to respond. And that's what Jesus did. In the right time, he was able to respond you know, we have a CNMA member of, of our church at Ridgeway who's the assistant secretary general of the UN, like this number two in command of the UN. He had come over to my class last uh, fall, to last spring, to teach uh, about Christians in government. And he was going to talk and sharing his story. And at the end of the class, my, our students asked him, what can we pray for you? Second in command of the UN, right? Very powerful man, CMA guy, loves the Lord. You know what he says? Please pray that I will prioritize prayer in my life. Because when I wake up in the morning, the tendency is to grab my Blackberry and start firing away messages. But he says, please pray that I will prioritize prayer. I seek the face of our Father before I go deal with all the world's problems. 
Isn't that what we all need to do? Somehow, the urgency, I don't know about y'all, right? But for me, somehow when I grab my email in the morning, I somehow can kickstart my brain into work mode. Otherwise, it's like a slow awakening, you know? But if I grab my email, all right, let's go. Let's take care of stuff, right? But guess what? You're being pulled. And there's somehow a little bit of joy, a little bit of, uh, not joy. It's some type of satisfaction that comes into, some of, I don't know if you're, some of you are looking at me. Come on, I know y'all better, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just human tendency. Like, we want to just jumpstart and go about, but then we haven't really slowed down to seek the face of the Father. Because if you haven't sought the face of the Father, you'll be pulled by every, everybody's urgencies. Everybody's urgencies can wait until you have sought the face of the Father. And then you know everything just kind of falls in place. But here's the third thing that I want to talk about, and then we'll close. The disciples were terrified, and Jesus comes to them, and he says, take courage, it is I. But Peter, got to love Peter, right? He takes Jesus' words right to heart. <laughs> he says, okay, Jesus, if it is you, tell me to come, and I'll get out of the boat and start walking to you. You know what Jesus says? Are you sure, buddy? No. Jesus says, come. Now, all of us would not be like Peter. We would, go, we would be up to here with Peter. Right? We would say, Jesus, you say, and I'll come. We'll come to the edge of the board. Like, what do you think, Jesus? Jesus says, come. And we're like, oh, let me think about it. It's like Pedro. You know Pedro? He was driving, driving around New York City looking for parking. Poor guy. I mean, he didn't have a job for so long. Finally, he got a job, like an interview. And he's driving around looking for a parking spot. And, and you know, it's time for the interview. He's going to lose this. And he says, Jesus, if you provide a parking spot, I will drop it into Kila and I'll go to church. Like, miraculously, a parking spot appears out of nowhere. He pulls into the parking spot, and he says, oh, never mind, Jesus, I just found one. <laughs> right? <laughs> never mind, Jesus, I just found one. This is how we all are, aren't we? We say, Jesus, you say come, and I'll come. But then Jesus says come, and we're like, uh, no, the water's really cold. <laughs> and we slowly back away. But Jesus has come. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking toward Jesus. Remember, Jesus is a considerable distance away. They had to mistake him for a ghost. He started walking toward Jesus. Not just toward, actually, he came to Jesus is what the scripture says. In my mind, always, it was he started walking toward Jesus, took a couple of steps, because all the pictures were of the boat, a couple of feet of you know, water, and then Jesus far away. But no, the Bible says he came to Jesus. He walked quite a ways on water. But then he looked at the wind. First of all, the Bible says, he looked at the wind. How do you see the wind? Listen, last time I checked, you cannot see the wind. Okay? But he saw the wind, and he became very afraid. And Peter says, and Jesus says to him, and it, this is the third time immediately is used. You hear another buffeting prayer. Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus grabbed him from the water. What does Jesus say? Why did you be, why were you afraid? You were doing so good, bud. Why did you get afraid? And there's no reprimand. There's no, you know, like, boom, you should have done better. But he gets into the boat and the waves and the winds quiet down. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew you see this phrase they look at him and they say you truly are the son of God and
here's my last point, my friends. There are depths of the greatness of God that we will never know unless we go through the buffeting of life. But as we go through them, we come out with a deeper revelation that our only adequate response is, wow, you truly are the Son of God. We worship you. This is the revelation, the first time that they ever had of worshiping God. Because guess what? If Jesus was just a prophet, a rabbi, to worship him would have been blasphemous. And in these moments of crisis, you get a little bit more of a better glimpse of who Jesus is. That you will never have if it wasn't for the buffeting waves. As you go through these buffeting waves, you come out of them. Immediately, Jesus shows up. You get into the boat, and then you begin to see a glimpse. Wow, God, you are bigger than my wildest imagination. You came through for me. You came through for me. I was so distraught. I thought I was going to sink. I thought it was all going to be over. But, Lord, you came through. You're so close your eyes for a moment today I don't know what you've been going through my friends I don't know if you're questioning where God is leading you I don't know if you're looking at the waves and the winds and you're beginning to sink when you've been doing so well my brothers and sisters the word of the Lord to you today is that he will not leave you he will not leave you he will not leave you if he said to go he will not let you sink. And as you begin to pour out these prayers, these breath prayers, in your own words, would you just pray out a breath prayer now? I don't know what you're praying. It could be something as simple as, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I'm holding on to you. Lord, I trust you. Lord, please help me. Lord, please don't let me sink. These breath prayers. God, I'm holding on. You said, you said to go, and I'm going, God. I trusted you, and I stepped out. And I don't know where you are. It seems like you're taking a while, but I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. I'm holding on to you, God, because you never fail. Would you just open up your palms to God right now, and I'll pray with you. Lord, we offer our lives to you. And with our hearts open and our palms open before you, we just want you to know, God, we're being buffeted, but we trust you. We trust you with all our hearts. You never fail. You always remain. You are faithful, and you will come to us. And Lord, we know we will see a little bit more about who you are. We will see the depth of who you are, and we will trust you more. We offer our lives to you, Lord, our broken, wounded, hurting lives. You never fail. 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 We hold on to you, God. We're holding on to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.